Specialty Story, session number 90. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week where I have an amazing conversation with a physician, a specialist in his or her field. This week, I have a great guest, an academic infectious disease physician at Brown University in Rhode Island. And I have a fun conversation with Dr. Chan all about what it's like to be an infectious disease doc, what his day looks like, what his week looks like, why he chose infectious disease and what he's doing to further progress the field and help his patients and hopefully get you an inside look and and get you interested in infectious disease. So let's go ahead and jump in, say hello to Dr. Chan and really dive in, find out why he became interested in infectious disease to begin with. Yeah, so I became interested in infectious diseases probably back in um, undergraduate of college. So I was actually uh, majored in microbiology at the University of Vermont. So I was very interested in bacteria and viruses and infections and trying to solve the problem, actually. Did you major in microbiology because you're like, oh, I'm pre-med, that's what I'm supposed to major in? Or, or was there some early uh, interest in bugs even before then? Yeah, so my dad was actually uh, the first doctor in our family. He's a cardiologist. Um, but from an early age, I always like to fix things, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I initially actually went into college majoring in engineering um, because engineers like to fix stuff. And I realized very early on that I wanted to go to medical school. And so I initially changed into biology, but felt like biology was too generic. And I then changed to microbiology with a, with a focus actually on genetic engineering and very interested in um, at a microscopic level and sort of a bug level, how to uh, uh, interest in, in the genetics of life. Very interesting. Okay. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good infectious diseases physician? I think really the ability to think through a problem from top to bottom with particular attention to detail and things that um, other people may have missed. The one uh, one piece of advice I often give to medical students, especially early in their career, is to really think about a problem in a timeline. And I think being able to sort of put things together in a timely fashion and think through the different problems and, and problem solving and think critically um, is really one of the most important attributes of an of a infectious disease doc. That timeline is really important for uh, incubation period and, and time from oh. exposure and all that stuff. So that fits really well there. Totally. And uh, further on in my career, so I initially got into the field of HIV, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, I'm sure, um, for more of a research sort of, you know, how do we actually cure, you know, fix HIV? Uh, But as I've progressed, I've gotten so much more interested at the intersection of HIV with um, social justice and health disparities. And a lot of my work now, actually, uh, you know, I haven't pipetted anything in the last 10 years. And a lot of my work now is really public health focused and um, at the community level and engaging uh, populations across our state. Okay, very cool. Yeah, we'll we'll dig into some of those 
abilities to subspecialize and to do things outside of clinical medicine. So that'd be very interesting. When you were going through medical school, it sounds like pretty early on you you had infectious diseases on your mind. Was there uh, any other specialty, especially going through your internal medicine residency that was like, ooh, maybe I would be happier doing this other thing instead? Yeah, so I think even during medical school, actually, I struggled a little bit because I found everything interesting. So I loved my surgical rotations. I liked OBGYN. I liked medicine. I liked pediatrics. Um, I did think for a while about uh, oncology. You know, I did, uh, you know, I thought about OBGYN out of medical school. Um, When I got to residency, though, I felt like I was pretty committed to infectious disease. I did consider oncology um, also because of some of the genetic um, research going on at the time, but eventually landed on on ID, which I'm certainly happy that I did. It seems like ID is is one of those similar to kind of like emergency medicine. And, and there was another specialty recently that I had on that, that talked a lot about kind of touching every field. Obviously, every field deals with infection, whether it's post-op infection or or special infections with uh, pregnancy and stuff like that. So do you think that helped lend you towards uh, leaning towards ID? I think so. I do like the fact that ID touches every part of the body, is that there's broad overlap with lots of other um, fields and disciplines. And I think one thing especially that does it for me is that you can actually cure a lot of infections. So I think a lot of medicine now is managing chronic diseases, which is fine and good. Um, but one thing that really sort of appealed to me about infections is that you can cure the majority of them mm-hmm. and make people 100% back to normal. Um, and that was just incredibly uh, appealing. Yeah. What types of patients are you treating day in and day out as an ID doc? Yeah. So I feel like my, you know, my career is really split into almost two separate types of care. So I certainly do infectious diseases consults in the hospital. And in the hospital, that's sort of your bread and butter infectious diseases. So you have endocarditis, you have osteomyelitis, you have diabetic, you know, skin and soft tissue infections, you know, we and, and the whole spectrum of other infections from malaria to TB to um, to many other sorts of you name it is what we occasionally walks into the hospital. On the outpatient side, which is something that going through training, I was a little bit less clear about, but I it's sort of become more my bread and butter and, and more my main uh, stay here in ID, it's really the outpatient side. So that's a lot of HIV care. You know, I'm primary care to a lot of my HIV positive patients. Um, I started the pre-exposure prep clinic, prophylaxis clinic at our, at our site here. Um, and I run our STD clinic. Uh, so that's a lot of stuff that I actually didn't receive training in necessarily uh, through, through fellowship and or residency. Um, but really takes up a lot of my time now is a lot of the outpatient ID care. For the student who really likes the investigative piece of medicine, as an ID doc, what percentage of patients are coming to you already with cultures that that are positive and you know what bug you're treating and maybe you just need to 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 dial in the treatment and and what percentage are are patients coming to you with these? potentially like malaria where they have these uh, cyclical fevers and stuff and you're, you're there trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. So I feel like maybe a quarter of the time um, cases come to us with um, really clear culture, you know, proven infections and, you know, it's a staph aureus, a strep infection, and you choose what you're going to get. 
Um, maybe a little bit more than a quarter, maybe about a third of the time, there's clear culture data to help guide the decisions. Um, I feel like another third of the time, you know, it's, uh, you know, we just don't have culture data. So there's lots of reasons, certainly in real world clinical settings, right, where cultures may not be accurate or they may be negative if they're not drawn um, correctly, if they're drawn off the wrong lines, if it takes too long for them to get to the labs. And then there's certainly lots of bugs that just don't grow. So I feel like, you know, a third of the time, quarter of the time, we're kind of just shooting in the dark and making our best guess, um, guided by other aspects of the clinical um, patient. Um, and then the other third of the time are just sort of random things that we get called for. So the majority of that is things like fever, fever of unknown origin. You know, our patient has a fever, unsure what it's from. Can you come and provide some assistance? Um, some of the cases are, you know, rising white blood counts. You know, what do we do? Some are for um, workup of other, you know, random questions that um, that uh, are unclear to the primary team. And I feel like 10% of the time are really those cases that, you know, walk through the door and you're like, oh, my goodness, where does this come from? <laughs> you know, people from other countries, you know, you're thinking about malaria, you think about TB, you're thinking about Rusella, you know, you're thinking about these other random things. Um, and it's in a percent, a small percent of those times, you know, a couple percent, um, you, you nail the diagnosis of uh, some really random disease and you you give them the appropriate antibiotics and, and you cure them. And that's really one of the greatest feelings, I think, in, in ID. How much of your job looks exactly like the TV show House? That's what every student wants to know. You know, to be fair, I feel like actually a fair amount of it does. I mean, <laughs> I feel like one out of every 10 patients I see, it's sort of like this complete mystery and you're trying to piece things together. And I think the other thing that I really like, and most of us ID docs do is really diving into the social history. Mm -hmm. I think for many parts of medicine, the social history doesn't necessarily matter quite as much depending on who you talk to, but in ID, the social history can really be everything. Um, and the person's sort of demographics and how you frame them, um, you know, epidemiologic wise. So I do feel like a fair amount of time, I feel like house and I love that TV show. And, nice. Um, you know, I watched the first half dozen seasons there. But just to be clear, nobody's breaking into any houses, correct? Uh, no comment. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, no house breaking. Um, but occasionally we have to uh, think outside the box, which yeah. is, again, another one of the reasons why I really like ID. Very cool. So you're in an academic setting. For you, what was that decision algorithm to stay in an academic setting versus going out into the community? Yeah, I think there's pros and cons to each. It's sort of what, um, you know, what you like to do. Certainly in the private world, uh, you have incredible flexibility um, a lot of times, especially if you work for yourself or a smaller practice. Uh, financially, you sort of eat what you kill. Um, you can make much more in the private world depending on what you do. Uh, part of my career, though, was always very academic and research-oriented. So I'm also PI of several NIH grants and other grants, um, and you can't really do that in the private world. So that's another point um, about, I think, academic ID careers is that a lot of times, a lot of people have um, several hats. So certainly as a clinician, um, myself, I'm very involved in research and public health. And especially in the academic world, you have a chance to get involved in lots of other different, um, uh, whether it be committees or leadership roles or antimicrobial stewardship or working for departments of health. There's lots of other opportunities in a career of ID to really, um, really spread out. 
And just to clarify, it, it comes up all the time. You're doing a ton of research at a, a major Ivy League institution, and yet you don't have a PhD. So just to, to make it known, it is possible to do research without that PhD. It is possible. And again, as I mentioned, actually, I progressed in my, you know, back in undergrads, I immediately afterwards, I got a master's in genetics. Mm. Again, so that's pipetting and PCR. So I do have some research experience that I built on. But one of my personal successes, especially for NIH funding, and this is certainly to people interested in research, is to really collaborate, 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 collaborate. And one of my keys to successfully writing NIH grants is that I always lead the grant with a PhD person. Nice. And the NIH loves it because you have two different complementary skill sets with a cl- more of a clinically oriented researcher and then more of a, a PhD driven researcher. I love it. My, my main message here for the whole podcast network and everything I do is collaboration, not competition. So you're, you're perfect messaging there. So as an academic ID doc, describe a typical week for you. Yeah. So <laughs> it seems like every week's a little bit different. I have clinics on Thursdays and Fridays afternoons. For about four to eight weeks out of the year, I'll do inpatient um, service time where I go up to the hospitals to do some consultations on the inpatient wards. And that's where um, I'll see the majority of bread and butter infectious diseases cases. And then the rest of my time is really spread out running various research and and programmatic aspects um, of what we do here. So I have multiple meetings related to NIH grants, I'm meeting with research staff, I'm meeting with collaborators, we're doing conference calls, Um, I'm meeting with the Department of Public Health. I work actually part-time here in the state of Rhode Island for the Department of Public Health and helping lead some of their statewide initiatives, Um, but spread across, you know, various institutions, um, pushing different uh, agendas related to HIV and other STDs forward. Very cool. For the student who may be interested in procedures and working with their hands, what sort of opportunities are there in ID for that? So it's funny, this is actually a pertinent question. I've uh, had to uh, re-educate myself about performing lumbar punctures. <laughs> um, so I will say in ID compared to many other fields, there's in general, uh, it's, a, it's less a procedure driven field, uh, just to be upfront about that. But there are definitely things you can do. Um, and most of them are sort of uh, parallel that of what uh, an internist can do as well. So, you know, certainly for in our clinic, we do uh, lumbar punctures is one. Um, you know, there's others who occasionally do thoracentesis and um, other uh, procedures. We There are some ID physicians, not myself, who feel comfortable doing things like biopsies. Um, and certainly all of us uh, routinely take cultures, but that's not necessarily a uh, a procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, but minimal overall, but there are some. What does call look like for you? Uh, the beauty of being an ID doctor is that uh, there's not many, if any, emergencies where you have to go into the hospital ever. Um, so a very good quality of life from a call aspect. Uh, so personally, I take call, you know, you know, a couple months out of the year, perhaps, uh, where I, am, uh, I have to answer the phones uh, through the night. However, academic institutions, including where I'm at, uh, usually there's a fellow uh, which takes all the calls, and then if there's something that they can't answer, then they turf it to the uh, the attending. Um, and so that only happens to me about once or twice a year, to tell you the truth, where I get called in the wee hours of the morning um, by the fellow, uh, and they're encouraged to do so if they ever come across anything, where there's a case that they just need additional input. Um, otherwise, for a lot of calls, 
It's simply start antibiotics, broad spectrum, and we'll see them in the morning to help evaluate. Do you feel like as an academic ID doc, you have enough time for life outside of medicine and the hospital? I do. Yep. So I have two kids myself. Um, my wife works full time, actually. She works several nights a week till 10 p.m. Uh, so I actually do a lot of the child care in our house and our family, uh, especially in the evenings. And so especially as an academic ID physician, you have time to uh, you have flexibility with your time. So certainly you have to put in the time to be successful if you want to be successful. Uh, but you have a lot of flexibility in terms of how time is managed and when you can be available for family or kids. And you know, I make sure to exercise every day, which is incredibly important. Um, and I do a large part of the uh, the child care as well. So I definitely feel like, at least from the ID physician standpoint, that there's great uh, ability to, uh, to have a, a balanced life. What does the, the training path look like to become an ID doc? So infectious diseases um, is a fellowship after internal medicine residency. So it's going through traditional uh, internal med- three-year internal medicine residency. And then it's, in general, a two-year clinical fellowship after that. Uh, there are numerous variations. Uh, there are research-oriented fellowships. There's combined clinical research fellowships um, that can be three-plus years. Uh, and given that ID is especially a research-driven um, uh, uh, field in many places, there's lots of places that do combine the clinical and the research um, together. The typical pathway is two years of, of um, ID fellowship. Uh, there are a number of my colleagues that come from MedPeds uh, residencies. Uh, there's a number of my colleagues that also come from a MedPeds residency to do a adult ID and pediatric ID fellowship um, over three to four years as well. Are there any strictly PEDS docs going into ID at all? Is that a path? You can go, there's p- pediatric ID as a specialty. So you can go from a pediatric residency into a pediatric ID fellowship. Okay. Um, same number of years, I'm pretty sure, don't hold me to that. Okay. I'm pretty sure it's the same number of years to become a pediatric ID doc. Yeah, we'll have a, a specific PEDS ID doc on to talk about that path. And what about, it's, it seems like some fellowships allow family practice trained docs in to the fellowship. Is, it, is, is there any path for family practice trained docs in or no? I'm not sure about that at all. That's a great question. Okay. Um, I imagine why not? Um, <laughs> More the merrier, <laughs> right? I, Collaboration. I, I would feel to give you the the yeah. I can't confirm that though. Okay. No, all right. Not a problem. So, how competitive is ID compared to other uh, IM fellowships? Yeah. So, infectious diseases. The top programs in infectious diseases do tend to be pretty competitive. Um, but uh, there, it's not as competitive per se as cardiology or GI. Mm. Um, but the top programs are definitely competitive. Okay, and you being at a big institution, I'm sure Brown is somewhat competitive. How, what should a an IM resident be doing to be competitive for those top programs? So, in general, besides doing well um, in residency. Uh, as a rule of thumb, uh, just being involved in in something that really demonstrates your interest. So given that ID is very diverse, uh, there's a lot of people from various backgrounds and experiences that, uh, that we see who are interested in ID, and it's all good. It sort of depends what brings you into ID. Um, that could be, you know, we see a lot of people interested in infection control and in antimicrobial stewardship and in, in antibiotic management 
We certainly see people interested in international health. Um, we see people interested in, in the HIV, STDs um, pathway as well. Uh, so any of those above, but just exploring those through residency and you know, doing research or doing projects, not even re just doing something with, um, with a mentor or an ID physician to really show and demonstrate your interest and to make sure you're interested and in, in that you, you want to continue in this pathway, but just doing something extracurricular outside of your normal um, uh, residency duties. And then certainly the more that you can have, certainly if you're interested in academic medicine, uh, you know, getting your name on some peer-reviewed publications, you know, getting involved in some grants, um, all that can go a long way as well. We talked a little bit earlier, you're very interested in HIV. What opportunities are there, once you're fellowship trained as an ID doc, what opportunities are there to further subspecialize either officially or unofficially? Yeah, so the, you know, there's various routes to become uh, uh, certified in HIV care. One is to be do a fellowship in infectious diseases and become a, you know, an infectious disease physician. Um, there's also some uh, from a medicine as an internal medicine doctor. There's a couple certification programs out there where you can actually become a certified medicine physician in HIV care, um, doing a, a fellowship, which I believe is one year. Again, don't hold me to that, mm. but where you can do a one year fellowship to do HIV care. Um, once you become specialized in HIV care, uh, there's not a lot. There's not sort of a next step, if you will, in terms of specialty. A lot of the people you see nationally and across the world to take it to that next level are really research experts. So people that really develop um, a research exp expertise, say in drug resistance or in neurological complications related to HIV AIDS. So usually it's people that have done, who start to do research in a specific topic of HIV, um, who really become sort of the world or national experts in, in that specific aspect of HIV. Mm -hmm. And what about for somebody going through their infectious disease fellowship for them to further subspecialize? Are there further training for like TB or um, at like uh, meningitis or something like that, that uh, somebody would go down a path? Yeah, so great question. So there's not any specific um, uh, tracks, if you will, uh, for most of this. There are you know, there are some programs out there, for example, to, to get more experience in antimicrobial stewardship and things like that. But within your typical infectious diseases fellowship program, um, there's usually not other specific tracks that you can, you know, that you can really gain um, a certification in. Mm -hmm. Most of what you, most of what happens and how one develops one's interest and expertise within infectious diseases is based on where you spend your time. Yeah. So there's elective months, there's, you know, faculty at various institutions. And of course, there's a clinical care. Like, what do you see all day? If you want to specialize in HIV care, it may not make sense then to go to a rural Midwestern, you know, state where there's no HIV patients. Hmm. So versus if you train in a major urban center where all you see day in and day out are HIV patients. Um, so a lot of it is really self-directed and self-driven. There's certainly programs and workshops and, and courses um, that are offered routinely at, at many major academic institutions where you can start to develop um, specific interests and focus uh, within aspects of infectious diseases. Uh, but there's not a lot of specific tracks, per se, to really, um, to really, you know, become an expert, quote, in meningitis. And again, as you look around the country and you sort of, and even within different schools, 
um, the people generally that develop expertise in meningitis or fungal infections or you know STDs are people that have developed programs and research portfolios around those different topics. Okay, that sounds good. For the osteopathic student listening to this or maybe osteopathic resident listening to this who is interested in ID, what sort of negative bias do you see out there for the DOs? Well, I'm going to be honest. I don't see I don't see a whole lot. So one of my mentors, uh, I don't think he'd mind me using his name, but Len Mermel, uh, who is a DO uh, who runs infection control at Rhode Island Hospital, uh, is one of my mentors and one person that I routinely call up, uh, including this week, for um, pieces of advice. So I think it's less about the degree after your name. I mean, understand, of course, you have to have a degree, yep. but less about the degree on, after your name and and more about uh, what you make of yourself and 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 how your 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 career transpires. So I know some very competent and 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 fantastic and people I've considered life mentors um, who are DOs. So I wouldn't I definitely wouldn't let that be a too much of a consideration. What do you wish primary care providers knew about what you're doing day in and day out to help their patients and and your future patients hopefully have better results? Yeah, so I think you know our primary care colleagues are fantastic, and you know providing some primary care myself, certainly to my HIV positive patients. I mean, the way the medicine has gone is that everything's subspecialized, and it's so impossible to be good at everything and keep up with every single aspect of literature on every single disease. And so, you know, I found certainly as I've uh, be you know gone through the years here in infectious diseases that I've become less comfortable managing you know, aspects of diabetes and, and primary prevention related to cardiovascular disease. So I think our primary care workforce certainly has a very difficult, if not impossible job um, many times. And uh, from my perspective as an ID physician, especially someone involved in public health, uh, there are some diseases um, like HIV that I think if we engaged all of primary care is that we essentially have, you know, we have the power to end that tomorrow. You know, so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of emerging data and approaches, especially with HIV, where, for example, if we test everyone, um, everyone that's engaged in primary care and get them on treatment and link them to care, is that we have the potential to really make huge strides uh, in addressing the HIV epidemic. However, to really do that, and part of our work here, certainly in Rhode Island and elsewhere, is to try to engage the primary care community in 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 assisting. Uh, with HIV testing and testing for other STDs. What other specialties do you work the closest with? I think internists, you know, primary care. I mean, especially in the hospital, you know, the hospitalists, internists, um, you know, they're the ones that consult us for infectious diseases cases. And then on the outside, in the outpatient world, we get a lot of referrals in from primary care and internists, adult medicine docs. Um, for various aspects of uh, of HIV and ID care as well. You talked a little bit earlier about your your involvement with public health. What opportunities are there for somebody who who may want to explore outside of clinical medicine? What opportunities are there for an ID doc? I've really found that there are tons, tons and tons and tons of opportunities for infectious diseases doctors to get involved. Um, you know, I have colleagues across the world, people that work internationally, people that provide care at international sites, people that consult for NGOs, the WHO. Um, there's tons of opportunity uh, nationally and locally. 
our health departments, many health departments across the country do have consulting positions, if not full-time positions um, for infectious diseases docs uh, within public health and um, even situations like mine where I'm on staff, certainly at our academic institution, but I do consult part-time for our Department of Health on uh, aspects related to HIV STDs. There's also uh, opportunities at other, you know, other outpatient health centers. So some of my colleagues um, also provide consulting services related to Hep C treatment, um, HIV care, um, and various other aspects of uh, of ID care to uh, community health centers, NGOs, um, et cetera. Also, a lot of community-based organizations uh, have medical director roles, um, and given that a lot of community agencies work for things like substance use treatment or, you know, aid service um, organizations, uh, STD clinics, a lot of these organizations have roles for medical directors, and a lot of my colleagues have served on those over the years as well. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into ID? I think the biggest transition for me was actually becoming more of a senior person. Um, it's been a little bit more complicated. The higher you move up the food chain um, in terms of leadership, it's something that I've had to learn sort of on the fly. So I currently manage you know, a team of over a dozen people um, and have a number of different uh, leadership uh, positions uh, throughout our state. And it's, it's something that they don't teach you in medical school at all. It's actually how to be uh, both run a business, essentially, in terms of managing different sources of income, whether it be clinical or grant related, um, and then how to manage people and how to be a leader. Uh, and it's something that they train you very well throughout medical school and residency to be a clinician. But some of these more, I guess, if you will, basic um, business slash leadership slash managing skills are something I have, I've had to learn on the fly. That's been a little bit difficult for me and been on a steep learning curve, and certainly I continue to learn every day. Uh, but it's something I wish I'd probably taken a little more formal training with, um, uh, given the positions that I currently have. Do you have a go-to leadership or business book that you would recommend to everybody? Uh, I don't, actually. What okay. I have done, uh, my approach has actually been to have several key mentors, people that have been through this time and time again. Um, some people who are much more experienced and I lean on them heavily and ask them, uh, you know, questions about how to navigate different situations, questions about money, funding, et cetera. Um, so I do, you know, I seek out mentorship from people that have been in, um, in, in good positions. And I would recommend that certainly as a rule of thumb for, for all your listeners and certainly whatever stage you're at is really to seek out a couple of key trusted people that you can ask. Um, confidentially, some you know tricky situations if you ever find yourself in them. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the the role of this podcast is all my guests are virtual mentors, which is kind of fun. What do you like the most about being an ID doc? So I think my, as I mentioned, I'm not I don't spend as much time in the hospital as a lot of my ID colleagues. What I've really gravitated to more is a preventative side of infections, actually, uh, which is something that I didn't anticipate certainly through my training. So I do a lot of you know, I started our HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis program. Um, I see a lot of at people that are at risk of HIV, and my entire one of my jobs is to keep them negative. So I've really enjoyed interacting with young, otherwise healthy people, both in, in, in terms of STDs and, and preventative care, and even HIV-positive patients now. A lot of them are young in their 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, and as I'm sure most of your listeners know, the treatments now for HIV are so advanced, one pill once a day, is that people do fine. So I'm doing a lot of preventative care uh, that I didn't really see myself doing, say, 10, 15 years ago. 
Um, but I find that I really enjoy that aspect the most is keeping people healthy, um, is, is, you know, guiding people. And um, similar to our previous comment there about mentorship, I, I feel like I do a lot of education and counseling and teaching and mentorship um, to my patients, trying to guide them through difficult situations, um, mostly related, but not all related to their health. Um, and, it, and I've enjoyed that aspect really the most. Okay. What do you like the least? Again, I think as I've sort of um, progressed through my career is uh, is uh, the administrative burden sometimes that can become um, pretty, uh, sometimes overwhelming. And again, I encourage your uh, listeners as you progress is that at some point, um, the administrative side of medicine may uh, start to weigh heavily, heavily on your career and just trying to set some clear boundaries and, and some structures to help manage that time because you know, it's funny. I just sat on a on a panel for physician burnout, um, and the the EMRs are actually one of the number one causes, <laughs> number one reported things for physician burnout in terms of all the messaging that comes across the EMRs. So I think setting some clear boundaries and limits. Um, but for myself, I think one of the most challenging things has just been managing the incredible administrative burden that comes on, you know, as you progress in your career. Do you see any major changes coming to the field of ID that? a medical student or resident should be aware of before embarking on this journey? I don't see any major changes um, in the field of infectious diseases. Um, I will say for those uh, people who are considering careers in HIV specifically, um, is to consider places where HIV is uh, affecting people most. So, And that includes the Deep South, actually. So a lot of money and resources now are being redirected to places in the deep south of the U.S. Um, where HIV is, is hardest hit. And so I think for those people interested in, in, in really making a difference related to HIV, HIV care, and also for those people looking to potentially uh, be successful for research funding is within the area of HIV to consider uh, collaborations or working in some of the areas uh, hit hardest uh, here in the U.S. What are your thoughts on the, the news about the second, I think, patient, quote unquote, cured of HIV? Yeah, so it's exciting. So um, for those of you that may be unaware, your listeners, uh, there's some, there has been some progress in terms of an HIV cure. There's been a couple of patients now that have received uh, bone marrow transplants with HIV mutations, with mutations that make them resistant to HIV infection. Uh, specifically CCR5 uh, deletion mutations. Um, and when implanted with a bone marrow transplant, these people have essentially cleared their HIV. So if you look if you look in some of the deep reservoirs of people in these people, my guess is you would still find some remnants of HIV, um, but people in the field are considering this as a functional cure, which I think is exciting. Um, however, it's not very, if you will, generalizable to the general HIV population. And one of the reasons for that is in order to get a bone marrow transplant, you have to essentially destroy one's immune system. Um, so bone marrow transplants are for people with um, uh, leukemia and other uh, bloodborne uh, cancers. And there's also a 25% mortality rate with, with uh, bone marrow transplants. Mm -hmm. So the treatments now for HIV are so good is that no one's going to risk a 25% one in four mortality rate with a bone marrow transplant um, versus just putting someone on HIV medications, which will keep them controlled for life. So it's it's very optimistic from, from the fact that it can be done. And if we figure out how to do it right and make it generalizable, um, it does have a, you know, 
it does have the potential to lead to a to a true cure for HIV. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be an ID doc? 110%. Any last words of wisdom for the med student or resident out there thinking about infectious disease? I would just say get involved early. Um, I think it's a fantastic career. I am 100% glad that I did it. There's tons and tons and tons of opportunity. Uh, there's You can get involved in so many things. There's a lot of overlap with international careers, with public health, public policies. Um, and I think having been more involved now in public health, I really love how I can take that individual, the, the lessons that I learned from taking care of an individual patient and try to apply them on a public health, public policy level across the entire population to make a difference. So I would definitely encourage your listeners, medical students, to really explore careers in, in ID, especially if you're interested in public health, um, social determinants of health, addressing health disparities. All right, so there you have it again, Dr. Chan, infectious disease physician, academic infectious disease physician. He's been out of training now for eight years and has a fun public health career as well as tackling HIV there in Rhode Island. So if you are interested in public health and infectious disease and all that fun stuff, hopefully this podcast, this episode will give you the courage to go and seek out some more information about infectious disease. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories.